0: Hello, this is episode 69 of the podcast called Blood and Rain. I'm your host, Arthur Dane. Today we have a guest from our corner of the internet that many of you have requested, uh, many of you know and love by the moniker Principality of Spirit. Uh, He hails from Greece. He is a devout Orthodox Christian, excellent writer, historian, studying cultural anthropologist, Uh, I'm very excited to have him here today. How are you?
1: Thank you for that introduction. I mean, uh, I didn't know if I um, was—I didn't know that I was so uh, much of a good writer. I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) Never thought of it that way, to be honest with you. But I'm good. I'm fine.
0: Very glad to hear it. Yeah, it's—it's funny. A lot of the guys in uh, in Anti-Fragile Fitness—they—they—they've requested you um specifically uh well actually <laughs> a good half of them um, so it's a uh, very good to have you here you and i have sort of rubbed shoulders um amongst our friends for i would say gosh a little over a year now um, yeah. probably the fall of 2021 so roughly a year and a half and um you, know, you and i were rarely formally introduced but what caught my eye is uh seeing another orthodox christian uh in, in this neck of the woods um we're kind of surrounded by catholics and protestants alike um Indeed, yeah. and uh people who are very much entrenched in the glory of the west and while my blood uh all of it comes from the west um, this is the exception of the small bit of Sicilian blood that I actually have from the, the Greek side of Sicily and Syracuse. Um yes. you know, all of my blood comes from Catholic Europe, really. And I grew up in a historically Protestant country in the United States. Um so while that is the case, um I I find myself buying less into you know the Holy Roman Empire lineage. Into Anglo Empire, into United States lineage and understanding we have of society, um, definitely more so the East, despite not inheriting that by blood. So um, it's I have a lot of questions for you. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot uh, we can discuss, but it's probably best to sort of start with who you are, where you're from, uh, and why you started uh, writing on Instagram.
1: Right. I mean, uh, people in this sphere mostly know me as Thomas. I've got. Uh... My baptismal name is uh, Athanasius. I mean, I don't uh, I don't care to share that. I don't mind. Uh, well, I come from Greece. I, I've lived here all my life. I've only ever been to one other country, and even that was just uh, crossing the border pretty much a little bit uh, into Bulgaria. Uh, I've studied here for a long time, and I suppose um, this whole thing just starts very early on when I was uh, still a teenager, and I got involved into... Uh, bunch of things. I mean, first and foremost, Gamergate, which uh, I don't know how many people know this anymore. It's a bit of a, a, you know, for old geezers like me on the internet. (laughs) And uh, I got into a lot of these political uh, scuffles, I suppose, on the internet. But uh, as I developed and as I grew and uh, I was always interested in history from even when I was a kid, you know, when I was like 12 or so. Um, And uh, I really got into history then. And it continued for the rest of my life. And as things got, as I got more into it, I started thinking more abstract. I didn't really care that much for the sort of common petty matters of the culture war, not to denigrate that, you know, there's a fight to be had, but, uh, you know, we need to first look at, you know, sort of priors and principles before we can even move on there.
0: Yeah, it's when you start getting into um, when you start getting into these you know parts of the internet. It's it's quite alluring to know that there are people on your side of the political spectrum actually out there. It's it's somewhat affirming that you're not entirely schizo and fulfilling the memes of you know taxi driver and drive and whatnot. Um, Absolutely, yeah. But it, there's a certain threshold. Like, um, you get to a point where, okay, well, we're all here. Now what? Um, and some people like to resort to infighting. And some people, you know, like to resort to um, being very legalistic with their side of the faith. Um, some people like to resort to playing the who's the most prepared for the Mad Max scenario contest. And it's it, all of those things just sort of die um no one's really taking these things further and developing them further and sort of forecasting what potential scenarios do we have ahead of us um how can we best prepare for these scenarios if we find ourselves in scenario a b c d e f or g what how would we react what are the solutions to this You know, three years ago, you would have been convinced, you know, in this, well, three years ago, COVID really just started. I remember hearing that I wouldn't be coming into work on St. Patrick's Day, which is a big deal. Um, And so maybe about, you know, give or take a month, people would be sort of speculating when it is that we're all going to be living in pods and eating bugs. And some people were game planning collapse. Um, you know being prepared for a war-torn civil war of winner-take-all this this new era of warlords in the United (laughs) States and elsewhere Um, so everyone everyone has like this sort of forecasting but very few have actually gotten it right because I I don't think very many people are understanding all the pieces on the board to be perfectly honest Um, but it gets to a point where you actually have to ask like all of these people that we're rubbing shoulders with, what is it that we want aside from the collapse of the current status quo? Uh, And not necessarily a violent um, accelerationist, vitalist, uh, for vitalists' sake, collapse, but um, just an ending of of a very powerful and insidious godless authority. Um, This is something you write about extensively. So... Yeah, yeah. I'd love to hear, you know, like somewhat of a distilled, but do not be afraid to be long-winded, your position on, and and it's very much indicative of the way you present yourself, you know, on Instagram, post-enlightenment worldview. Um, I actually titled this podcast Neo-Chivalric Society. I'd never seen something written like that before. So I saw it.
1: I saw it. Yeah. I I was, I wanted to explain that. And I put that on my bio specifically because uh, I thought it represented me better. You know, I'll start with um, the beginning of what you said. You know, I, I approach I approach this very much um, in a supportive sense with the with the idea of the broad tent. That okay, there are Catholics here, there are this, there are that. You know, for the most part, I can even tolerate pagans. Uh, most pagans, anyway. You know, I really only. Get into trouble with a lot of these uh, very hardcore types that uh, just won't accept a a broad coalition. They just don't care. And, you know, with those people, it's a waste of time to even try and talk to them about it. But obviously, within a sort of a broad tent, we're going to have tons of disagreements. But for for me, the matter is, as you said, you know, we're fighting this godless authority that is first and foremost. And while there are factions I'm not so keen on uh, allying with or have very very serious criticisms in regards to them. I think, um, uh, absolutely, I'd say that uh, we should, at this stage, remain the sort of broad tent. Uh, you know, as of now, I mean, as you said, we don't really have a sort of developed vision, not not a positive one, not a negative one. I mean, academic agent likes to talk about the negative vision. I know we both watch him. You know, we don't have that. We don't have that even like okay we know we're fighting some people but who are we fighting you know exactly are we fighting a certain you know religious and ethnic group that uh, certain segments are pointing to are we fighting the 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 global capitalist uh, bourgeois sort of class which sort of puts us in a similar situation to what the left kind of uh, says and uh, thinks are we fighting um, a combination of a bunch of different vested interests? Is this a matter of the deep state or I don't know, the shallow state or whatever? I don't know. It's We need to define these things. We need to get the sort of groundwork level there. Now, if you want me, I can go into the, we can get into the neo-chivalry as well. But uh, I'll leave that up to you because I think I answered a different thing right now.
0: Yeah, let's, let's, I mean, in, in response to your, you know, very quickly, response to your sort of, um, your take on Broad 10, I, th- I think, honestly, anyone, not so not the go down like sensible centrist, right? Like that whole magnum opus of AA, which um, your your counterpart, Thomas, uh, Letters from the Ruins and I, we kind of dissected that in our recent episode together. Um, it's kind of saying like, sensible is great, in, in in truth, we, we are um, we're, there are core metaphysical truths, tried truths and testaments that are applicable to any age. So and, you know Thomas has been you know uh, misconstrued as a traditionalist and he's more of a reactionary and there's a subtle difference there. Um, his uh, his sort of nature, um is kind of talking about more so about the future and he says in order for us to usher in you know a sort of a new era after this regime we can't just be a sensible centrist because there's something within men that wants to be radical there needs to be this surge of energy energy to enact change um in reference to your bit with academic agent you know he's very been very much on the the cyclical history uh trip which has been really interesting honestly because a stream on the prophets of doom was very good um in regards to that i i don't i think i saw your comment on um you know his poll on substack what about who were the the new barbarians um when he was doing the original stream of the prophets of doom i think i was the last like little super chat that asked and i said what um what do you think the likelihood of the Slavs being the barbarians? Because they have a, a certain av- high average IQ uh, for the most part, and they've maintained a martial spirit. They've maintained um, basically both not only devout faith, despite being behind the Iron Curtain, and they've maintained masculinity and a lot of traditional values, so on and so forth. Um, could these be the new barbarians? And then so he, he kind of asks like candidates for barbarians, um, Africans, American Blacks, slavs and there was another ethnic group um but he he stated these people would sort of come out of nowhere and your response was actually that the barbarians sort of live among us um barbarians within within europe and within sort of the european diaspora would kind of rise up and i thought that was a very interesting thought and in in response to cyclical history in general i talked about this with um with Zenovial that i think cyclical history is actually true within an encapsulation of Christian linear time, like we'll continue to fall into these cycles of a fallen world until end times, basically, until Revelation. I don't think that they're mutually exclusive. Um, so, in uh, overall, to, to sum up all of these things, kind of to get you know the audience up to speed with s- stuff that you and I have been sort of reading and digesting internalizing and pondering, probably over the past year plus. Um, I think to usher that in, uh, broad tent is. Um, is very much needed. Um, when I was on Jay Burden's show, uh, he kind of, he's very good at interviewing. He kind of cornered me into what my position is. And I kind of, as I was speaking to him, realized it's a form of Christian vitalism. Like there's vitality in the stakes of our salvation every single day, the stakes of our society every single day. Um, and as long as a Christian comes first of a vital, then um, there's nothing wrong in terms of the organization of one's personal and personal hierarchy and probably macro hierarchy for lack of a better term um so i think broad tent is is accurate i I don't think that we can I, i think maybe internally we need to especially us as orthodox in the middle of lent right now um we need to hold the line and deepen our faith constantly but we have to realize that um it's not the ultra devout orthodox alone who are going to be dealing with these matters of the world alone there's going to be a form of coalition and people need to be a lot less hot-headed because you know the the current regime while it's more fragmented than usual they're still orchestrating um with each other despite having a lot of opposites within their own camp much better than we ever could um i would really like to i've never seen the term uh neo-chivalric uh, society or not society, neo-chivalric values or mindset. Um, so, and I, I love that term, <laughs> just seeing it on the page because I, I was looking for your avatar and I checked your page again on Instagram. And, you know, typically I've, I've been seeing, you know, post-Enlightenment worldview and I saw that and I'm Like that's a new development. So um, I would definitely love to hear, and I'm sure all the listeners would love to hear about sort of uh, your original thoughts of post enlightenment worldview and neo chivalric mindset?
1: Of course, of course, right. So, you know, to begin with the the points that you made, uh, yeah, the thing with the barbarians is that the barbarians are inherently what makes them barbarians is exactly the sort of vital spirit. Now, vital and vitalist have a slight difference. The vitalist is one who makes an ideology out of vitality, essentially. And uh, in these times, for a lot of people, this is absolutely necessary. There's no other way to create a sort of vital resurgence than that. But with people like the Slavs, as they were mentioned, and others, it absolutely is such a vital resurgence without it being some sort of explicit ideology, but simply by the, um, the nature and the sort of cultural and religious frameworks of these people by themselves. Um, We'll leave that a bit uh, to the side, though, since we we have so many other things to talk about. Um, Here's the thing. The post-enlightenment worldview is something I added relatively early on to the account bio because I didn't really know how to describe myself, but I added that in. Uh, It came right after I read uh, uh, Why Liberalism Failed by uh, Deneen, Patrick J. Deneen, which was my not my first but one of my first sort of introductions and more uh, I suppose reactionary and traditionalist thought uh, now with um, with that I meant to imply that look it, it's cliche at this point you know people say it all the time and it was often a critique uh, supposedly a critique levied at traditionalists, but really it misunderstands the nature of what a traditionalist is you know people always said well you know yeah those forums might have been great in the past but you know the past is the past now. You know, we can't go back to the past, right? And people would say that all the time. You know, there's truth to that. You know, we're not trying to just revive some ancient corpse. You know, we're not trying to be, you know, I don't know, cultural and political necromancers here. That's not going to work. That produces a sort of zombie. That That's what essentially the current elites, the current people who are running the society are doing. They're trying to keep the corpse of sort of American and sort of European and in general, I suppose, you know, liberal, capitalist, um, uh, modernist optimism. They're trying to keep that alive, even though they've let essentially the postmodernist just hollow out the corpse. And they're just holding up the, uh, I don't know, the the skin suit, essentially. Um, You know, that's what they're doing. And we're not trying to do this. The point of traditionalism is obviously perennial truths. It's the idea that there are certain truths that uh, reemerge again and again and again. And this ties in exactly with cyclical history and exactly with what you said about uh, how cyclical history can work within the framework of Christianity, which uh, I completely agree with there. With you there, the the point of cyclical history is that we're you know we're going to stumble again and again and we're going to fall again and again, but we're also going to produce constantly these bursts of sort of golden age energy all the time. It's just going to keep happening. And what our duty is, is to guide this society towards that new golden age. Every time it's to, you know, in times like ours, it's to sort of weather the storm and to allow for the sort of the spring to come and for the new flowers to blossom after the long winter. And... Um, from that, we're going to get a new golden age eventually. And that's what we live for. And that's what we die for. We we live and we die for this golden age, at least in this world. You know, we're talking about the material affairs of this world. Now, spiritually, obviously, I'm an Orthodox Christian. That, I think, tells everybody what they need to know about what I think we should be doing spiritually, where our mind should be there. Um, that's on the post-enlightenment front. That's the point. The point is we're not going back or we're using these perennial truths and these this perennial understanding that certain forms can reemerge, and we're trying to make them work in the future we're looking at the trajectory of the future and we're saying which one of these great forms is going to re-emerge you know, how can we sort of make it reemerge today and this ties in absolutely with neo-chivalry in the sense that well let's take it from a purely military perspective right you know, knights were on horseback. Horses are not important anymore. Nobody's gonna be on horse on horseback. I don't believe in the Mad Max scenario, so I don't think we're gonna return to the horses when the uh, when the gas runs out. Right. Um, what is going to happen though is you could absolutely see, and you see this from a purely military technology, technological sort of military and technological lens. We're going to see the development of such impenetrable armor, right? you know, they're wearing Kevlar now, it's going to get to such a point where it covers the entire body again, there's a a helmet that covers the face as well. And it's going to be impenetrable by bullets. And you know what's going to happen then? Well, we're going to have melee weapons again. They're going to be different melee weapons. I don't know, they're going to be, I don't know, you know, (laughs) lightsabers from Star Wars, you know, cutting through Kevlar or something, but um, it's going to be that way. And, you know, obviously, that's just the military technological part. But through such military and technological means is given the opportunity to us to for for different forms of cultural and spiritual values to re-emerge. And this is where I'm hedging my bets. This is where I believe not only is neo-chivalry something I'm very much fascinated in and I want to promote as a code of behavior, as a form of uh, you know war and fighting, as a conduct for the warrior Right. But it's something that it can reemerge that I truly, in my heart of hearts, believe that if we're not going to see it, you know, maybe we won't see it. You know, maybe our children won't see it, but our grandchildren, our great grandchildren, they, they can see it. Absolutely. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, that's, that's a very, very interesting take. And I think it's, it's rooted in material reality as the way warfare advances. Um. Yeah, it's uh. <laughs> some of the AFF guys are kind of uh you know springing out in the chat as usual. Someone said a firm Kevlar body. Suit. <laughs> um. Yeah, I think that's um. That Taff is laughing. That is that's kind of in line, and not kind of it. Very much is in line with this idea that the only way is through like you said so we're not we're not going to go back and try to live in a zeitgeist it's very very sad to see people who are nostalgic for a zeitgeist and you know more so like for more than a day basically like i had this moment back in um back when i was still in san francisco I was working overnight security i got off work and i took the i took the bus to the civic center's train station you go to san francisco city hall it's, it's just stunning it's, it's positively stunning and you go to, just to that civic center there with the, the library and the museums and um war, war memorial opera house and davies hall where actually my mother uh got to sing um it's just it's different it's very much different. Like it's, it's not the San Francisco that you're seeing, you know, in the news of almost people and that energy, I I got really mad. I got deeply upset and I was nostalgic for this time that I was not part of. Um, But that didn't last, you know, more than, you know, a couple of days. And so these people that you and I kind of rub shoulders with who aren't really producing much kind of saying like, enjoy the decline Uh, it's over it's so over there's no there's no turning back it's just a they're not really rooted in history b they're not really rooted in reality c they're they're slothful and and they're 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 actually in a lot of ways prideful um because they're thinking that their feelings about it given the current set of given circumstances and their notions of a current set of given circumstances are the be-all end-all they're, they're not really trusting in more than themselves. Um, so this idea that, but, but there are things, you know, throughout history, there are patterns there. Like this, like you said, chivalric society. And the material reality has to, to get there. And right now ours is sort of decentralized in, in many ways, right? Um, and in some ways central, centralized in all the wrong ways. Um, we have you know the the American Empire has kind of been the most effective empire in the short game. I won't really say the long game. Uh, the long game, you know, obviously Rome had a, made a pretty solid run at it. I think the British Empire, for a good three hundred years, yeah. um, really had the world. And you know, c- c- credit to people. You know, credit to. They were Anglo friends. It's, it's the British Empire acted in the interests of the British people until World War One. Um, the last, you know, real monarch of, of Britain was uh Edward the Seventh. And you know, after they decided to, you know, make a certain deal to destroy Germany and therefore eventually destroy themselves, you know, the the, the people who were gonna take over post-World War II were the Americans. And you know, and so it was. But it was sort of centralized. I mean, and, and again, uh, this isn't really to kind of continue to promote AA's work, but I think what AA has done is distilled the origins of the, the empire we find ourselves in now, which isn't really much of an empire at all. Um, it's, it's more of a, a center of control that some might call a shadow hand, and in some instances it is. Um, and in some instances, not so much. It's like quite obvious, but it's it's insidious and it's not really something that can be fully resented. Um, unlike the Soviet Union, where, and especially for Christians, it was very clear, you know, who it was that was being resented. Right. Lenin, Stalin, Khrushchev, you know, all the way to Gorbachev. It's, it's pretty clear. A clear enemy. We don't, we didn't really have that. And we weren't really aware of that until like the past, gosh, like the past uh, seven years, eight years, you know, Brexit and Trump were kind of like the wake up calls for a lot of people. And, you know, the more we dug into these sorts of things, the more we saw that the more we got to understand managerialism, right? Um, the United States before it became hegemon if that kind of United States became hegemon, we'd probably be living in a different society. If Germany, you know, managed to either win World War One or secure the peace of 1916, we'd be living in a much different world. Um, it wouldn't necessarily be, maybe in the case of Germany, for sure. If, if Germany became hegemon, we'd be living in kind of a Hellenic society right now. Um, that's one of the few BAP takes that I really like, you know, from a second episode. Um, as far as the United States goes, like a pre-Federal Reserve United States um, being hegemon is, is an interesting prospect. Because it's, it's an empire created by Anglos, initially for Anglos. But in terms of you know what is written in the Constitution really comes off as more of a, like, once again, propositional nation. And But if it was pre-Federal Reserve, at least you have a hegemon that is actually consolidated because there's no foreign you know there's no external interest that's controlling uh, its banking supply and therefore pretty much everything else so it would be much clearer the the hierarchy despite the fact that there was there isn't a uh, there isn't you know an, a monarch there's a president but i actually think that in the long term that'd be a lot healthier if that power was consolidated the power we have the power we have now is not consolidated to the naked eye it's you know foreign interest NGOs, all of these things that, you know, you and I know very well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so until that's ruptured, right. That, that's really what's stalling metaphysically. What is truth, right? Um, I'm not necessarily a monarchist. I know I, I, I correct me if I'm wrong. I know you and several of our friends are, are monarchists. I can't, I am, quite, yes. okay. I can't quite share that sentiment probably because i am american um i the reason i i can't share that sentiment is not necessarily that i i think that rulers you know that monarchs can't be good rulers constantine king david um you know there have been very good rulers um but oftentimes you'll get people who aren't necessarily ready to rule and they get overtaken you know young rulers like sar nicholas Um, And people who just become, you know, so absurdly decadent, like uh, King Louis right before the French Revolution. Um, So what's stalling, though, really, is this regime is is preventing natural order from taking place because they hold all the cards. But as soon as those cards sort of rupture, you're going to see what's a natural order kind of return, basically um and in some instances it's going to be a lot more decentralized than before and in some ways it's going to be a lot uh, more centralized i can sort of game plan all i want and a lot of us can sort of game plan all we want but it seems to me that as soon as that happens your view of neo-chivalry this um this sort of tiered society uh, could return i don't necessarily think that's a bad thing um however i do think that um some some semblance of upward mobility within the within the hierarchy is is very healthy for the sake of uh you know <laughs> uh not, not not to use a trope but the cream rising to the top because there are a lot of instances where the monarch isn't necessarily uh, the cream of the crop. um you've talked about extensively you've talked about uh, meritocracy um so merit for merit's sake isn't really uh isn't really a deity and not something that should be put on a pedestal but i'm curious what your view is on how rigid these sort of hierarchies should be there are some people and and and, (laughs) this will be the last like AA reference but he said something the other day about like i can't wait till um the peasant class emerges because they just can't resist like the social media brain dead like mind virus where people are speaking in emojis like soon speaking properly is going to be aristocratic and I was like he's probably right but that's very Doomer <laughs> and very bleak <laughs> yeah. um, so I'm curious as to like what what level of rigidity do you think should be in place um, for like this post this post liberal world
1: here's the thing Uh, I mean, we got to start from the basic principles of the the entire thing. Um, You know, chivalry is composed of a bunch of parts, uh, at least historically, if we're dealing with it, since I'm writing my thesis on it anyway. So uh, chivalry has mainly the martial ethos. That's the big part. Uh, The martial ethos is obviously the fighting and the sort of honorable conduct in war. That's one thing. Then there was the social ethos, which was about good manners. And I mean, we we spoke about how, you know, even normal speaking, as AA put his very, I would agree, very doomer point across, you know, even normal speaking will soon be a sort of aristocratic commodity. And I mean, if you look at it historically, that's exactly how languages have gone. You know, we we speak about Demotic Egyptian, right, which is, uh, you know, the Greek language um, that was spoken in in Egypt in the Hellenistic period that language was a greatly simplified as compared to its uh, you know previous iterations as compared to previous forms of greek but you know if you try to learn it today you're not going to understand the thing even if you are greek yourself you're not going to get anything out of it it's going to be very difficult for you to go on with it uh, you know to a lesser extent you see this with medieval um, sort of byzantine greek uh, you see this in other languages. You see this in English. You can see this in old French. You can see this. I mean, old French is unintelligible with modern French. It's only Middle French that they can actually understand even today. And even then, it's you know sort of a partial understanding. Anyway, not to get too bogged down into the details, but you know, it was good speaking, good manners, all of these things. And you know, this is another feature again. If we take just the language part here. We could see a recurrence of the sort of, uh, you know, aristocratic versus sort of plebeian language use appearing once again in the modern world. You know, once again this new world that we live in, rather postmodern, you could say, as I have it on my uh, substack. You know, the world of postmodernity. You know, that's the thing, and you know, this is the second part of chivalry. The second part of chivalry is manners, it's good speaking, all of that. Third part is the religious oath again genuine belief in god we're talking you know protecting churches monasteries you know uh, being uh, you know treating priests and monks properly and with proper sort of reverence all of these things when you combine these things as the basic aspects of uh, of chivalry you know the martial ethos the courtly manners and the uh, religious oath you can find these even in societies I suppose, in certain short bursts of energy, even in societies that are not monarchist, that are not monarchist, that are not traditional. You could argue that in the Third French Republic, the one that existed uh, right before the First World War, that even then, there were these people spreading these values. And we mentioned the British Empire before. The British Empire could be said to have invented its own sort of form of neo-chivalry as well. And uh, because I think I didn't explain this, I will say this as well, Um, in this regard, that, uh, you know, as you say, you were more on the West and you started then, you know, sort of pushing aside, you know, the Holy Roman Empire and sort of looking at the majesty of the East. For me, it was kind of the opposite course, although, you know, when when I was a kid, I always played with knights and everything else. But, you know, when I grew up, I was very much into sort of Byzantium. Yeah, you know, we're very nationalist here, we're very patriotic. You know, we like our Byzantine history, we're a big empire, great stuff, right? And uh, as time goes on, I just, um, I really admire those brief periods in Greek history, like the Principality of Achaia, which I have a post going on, and the Latin Empire, which I actually did a post on, where you had this mixing of Western nightly, the Western knightly and sort of chivalric ethos with the, the Eastern traditions of governance and religion, right? Well, obviously, there was a lot of Catholicism coming in as well. But you get my point. There was a sort of a mix there, a sort of a harmony that I find very uh, absolutely amazing to look at and to study. And um, on that regard, we can not speak exactly about the monarchy question and the uh, meritocracy questions that you posed. Um, in regards to meritocracy, I completely get your point. I'm not uh, in favor of a complete caste system. I don't think a complete caste system is really European, frankly. I don't think it uh, fits very well with the cultural uh, traditions of the Europeans uh, in general. I would say that uh, regardless, though, a lot of the time, you know, we say we pick the best person for the job. When you look at it, you just pick a person that's maybe, you know, does something like five seconds faster than somebody else. Then I don't know, if, if you do not know the son of the president, there are other cases, obviously, where, you know, the son of the president is an imbecile. So you can't put him in charge of, you know, the functions of the corporation or whatever, because then you know, you're gonna have um, a lot of trouble. But, uh, you know, for the most part, we're talking about people of relatively average, you know, higher than average intellect, and especially when you consider that aristocratic families, first and foremost, you know, had to get there. I wrote this in the, the post, which you no doubt read about. You know, when you consider that these people had to take, attain their titles, defend their titles for centuries and millennia even, and keep them to this day, and then they were also marrying other people who were doing the same thing, you kind of end up with a certain degree of sort of natural selection, taking out all of the bad rulers and the imbeciles and the people with the various cognitive or other disorders, and you end up with a lot of people who are sort of, you know, above average intelligence, uh, very highly educated people, through, of course, the means that they have as noble families. That's kind of my, the gist of my anti meritocracy argument. It's not to say that, you know, the we shouldn't refresh the classes with time. That is obviously something I would absolutely agree with. But it is to say that what we have now is a sort of confusion where everybody can become everything, but nobody actually knows what their place in society is. Nobody has this sort of, I suppose, platonic idea, you know, Plato put this across. And it made a lot of sense to me and really connected. And that's when I started thinking about it. That, you know, In society, people should understand, you know, that they have a place in society and they should feel valuable in that place for them, which is made specifically for them. And what you saw in a lot of cases in the 19th century was not people choosing to go to the cities and becoming, you know, workers in the factories in hopes that they can make it rich or whatever. A lot of the time it was people who, you know, the government go them and they'd say, hey, now you're a free farmer. And that person you know will be a serf And then you know the government would go like you know the government functionaries would be like congratulations right now you can enter the free market uh, of labor right and that person was like well I, I didn't care to enter the free market of labor i was fine working here for you know in for the in the manner of my lord i, I didn't really care to get involved in competitions or to go work in factories or anything else fundamentally this was not You know, we we both know this, and everybody else, I think, in this chat, most people will also understand this, that, um, you know, this was not a move of altruism. This was just them needing more sort of raw bodies to throw at the sort of factory meat grinder in the 19th century. That was the point. And, you know, these people, a lot of them didn't want to be there. They didn't want to do that. It's the same thing with uh, when you look at old videos of women saying that they're anti-feminist in the 1920s and the 1950s. A bunch of interviews were con- conducted. I think you can find them online, and they just say, "Well, I'm happy with my role as a you know a stay-at-home wife. I don't really care to take part in politics or vote or any of these matters. Well, why are you bringing these things up?" A lot of people had a concrete place in society and they really liked that, and because other people were not content with that state in society, they wanted to tear the whole system down, and now we have a system where people just don't know what they want to be. You know they go to schools i saw this in the post very recently i don't want to you know make this into a very big ramble but you know i'm gonna end this soon but um i went to i saw a post recently where you know kids were talking about how you know kids in the uk uh pretty young kids you know 6 to 12 or whatever they were writing what job they want to be and they all put down things like vlogger uh, game streamer you know twitch streamer you know, back in my day, in your day, I'm sure it was, you know, it was all like, you know, cop, firefighter, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, military, um, a bunch of other things. You know, maybe some kid would go like, I don't know, explorer or natural scientist or whatever. But for the most part, it was, a you know, concrete jobs. Now it's vlogger and streamer because that's what these kids see as easy. That's what these kids see as enjoyable. And that's what they know to do this is the sort of confusion that i'm talking about we don't know what we want to be we don't understand that we're just thrown in a world where there are a bunch of jobs that need to be done and we just do things and nobody's really happy with it we just you know like it for the money and nothing else it's purely material anyway that's all i think i can't remember what else or you know maybe i missed the monarchy question we can i don't know you want me to expand on that
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm very pro ramble on this podcast. Pretty much every single guest who's somewhat long-winded apologizes. I'm like, no, no, no. Like that's I'm not trying to I'm not trying to corral you into and like, you know, a 10 second soundbite for a 24 hour news cycle. So um <laughs> Yeah, I mean there's a lot to unpack there. In terms of um kind of a martial society, I think that's you know, sorely lacking, right? Yeah. Um and I, I think whether you're a monarchy or not, if you miss that, you're going to have some kind of decay. Not to be quoting Ragnar Redbeard, um, but he's right when, you know, and this isn't necessarily like a lot of people will, will quote like, yeah, well, if they don't have some kind of Aries slash, you know, Mars worship, clearly, you know, they're going to upset the gods. <laughs> um Not to do a quick dunk on pagans, but to do a quick dunk on pagans. If the pagans were so powerful, why did they lose all of Europe? I'll just leave that at that. Um, But the martial spirit, I mean, what is the martial spirit, really? Is it just pure combat? Yes and no. Um, it's, It's basically the ability to defend against existential threats. It's an understanding of life and death. It's an understanding of what it takes, the discipline and will and grit and vitality that one needs to have in order to preserve what is behind them. Um, So if a nation doesn't have that, it just goes very lapsed. Now, people may point to the United States as well, saying, "Like I've I've seen some, some good points that the United States is a very lucky nation. In, in a lot of senses, I would agree. Um, p- probably the luckiest thing in the world is the Louisiana Purchase. Being able to, like, Napoleon strap for cash. He's going to sell <laughs> Louisiana, which doubled, I think more than doubled the size of the United States. Um, and then from there, they just needed to pick a fight with Mexico to, to get to the coast. Um, to secure my homeland, basically. But at the same time, that martial spirit never really died. Um... It's, it's one of the few revolutionary wars, not just a pure revolution. So it's a, a faction versus a faction in open traditional combat. Although the precursor to guerrilla warfare in many battles, you can see that. Um, obviously Trenton, that's the famous one. Uh, Saratoga, Bunker Hill, which a lot of people classify as a, as a loss, but really it's a, it's a draw. Um, but that martial spirit, so th- th- it was born in war country was they they fought for independence you know and then they had to fight again to to tighten the grip on that independence in the war of 1812 and you know then they're basically picking fights with every single native american tribe (laughs) for a good century uh and intermittent with that is you know the the fight to get to the coast uh, that that solidified a truly american um, idea and manifest destiny uh the nation hasn't really recovered from the civil war it's split itself in half so it's once again born in war um we finally gave gave into the the allure of overseas imperialism in the spanish-american war um we finally ended our isolationism in terms of being involved in the the course of european history in world war one and we became hegemon in world war ii everything we've done is born in war or martial society and people can point to we people can point to um people can point to you know various years of peace and isolationism but there was still some kind of martial spirit being cultivated you know, even even in westward expansion, when you're a pioneer, like, you could be picked off by some Native American tribe that wants your scalp. Like, it's there were stakes at all times. And, yeah. you know, JFK, uh, who's, who's a controversial figure, especially in this this sphere, right? So, if, if you know, um, you know, my father had a, a silver-backed or um, a, a non-Federal Reserve $5 banknote when it was in his childhood in New York City. And then JFK got assassinated. And then, you know, all those notes just disappeared. <laughs> so take that information uh, with a grain of salt, everyone listening. But that speaks as to some of the things that JFK was trying to do. JFK also talked about that there's a threat of, of weakness. There's a threat against physical fitness. So there is a martial, like the uh, old leaders understood... This need for a martial value, um, both on the micro scale and the macro scale. Obviously, I don't need to explain this history within Europe because Europe has been fighting itself for as long as Europe has been around. Um, but we, we're losing that. We're losing that in, um, in this. It, it, it's, it's a symptom of the people who are sort of holding all the cards, like that, that natural order of things, faith um martial uh, manners you know language custom all of these things it's all sort of wide open um i think i think that's where the vitalists you know get something right yes uh, I, I would say so and you know but not not so much that you know <laughs> again the, the mad max pipe dream it's, it's not happening uh, I'm, i pretty much say that every single episode now um to to just just to remind people um but in terms of um in terms of you know monarchy (laughs) not to say this on youtube but we saw we saw a society that had upward mobility within itself um at the same time everyone knew their place so they had like this very good knife's knife's edge balance of you know this is your place this is your place this is your place you're probably going to be really happy right the person who just has an aptitude for farming and doesn't really want to do much else you know throwing him into this like you said this wide open hellscape well you're free so go just do it and he's like what what do you what do you mean (laughs) like i want to go back to farming (laughs) um you know like no don't you want to be in this wonderful landscape of uh landscape of, you know, fluorescent lighting and whatnot. <laughs> it's like, yeah, probably not. But at the same time, um, having that wiggle room is like, well, this person, you know, came from that, comes from farming and it could be the same family and say, I have a vision for creating something else, you know, a true entrepreneurial spirit. Um, and I think having the room for that, like what you'd see in America is like, this exists because it can in this nation. You know that is that's been alluring to so many European immigrants who wanted to leave the farming life, or maybe wanted to leave you know the current given circumstances of taxation, or poverty or whatnot, and and head to America. There's something about the capitalist system that does indeed make a lot of ships rise when it's not messed with. That being said, that's I'm not going to back these capitalists who say if we just allow the market to correct itself, like it's. <laughs> it's it's very much the equivalent of communists you know who grew up in west portal san francisco or the hamptons in new york you know long island saying well communism has never really been tried well it never really can be tried just like pure capitalism can't really be tried um there was a nation there were there were a pair of nations that had this gradient of everyone has their place in upward mobility and those nations were you know the quote-unquote bad guys of world war ii um Things are centralized just enough. Uh, things are decentralized just enough. Um, but was sorely maybe not so much in the sense of uh, sense of uh, Mussolini's Italy, because from what I've read, he had a good relationship with uh, with the Vatican. Um, but certainly in in the sense of Nazi Germany, you started to see this like Nietzschean belief in a in like a divinity within Germany. You know, really just have that initially prosperous nations just descend into madness um you know the people who swear by you know some bit shoot things are probably screaming right now uh, if they're listening but uh, if not then I suppose we can sort of carry on past that um i think that missing link is god and this you know the reason i wanted to have you on um during lent Uh, for us Orthodox Christians, is, I think, a more peculiar question, a more fascinating question, and the reason why I get into arguments with people who are Americans who are suddenly neo-monarchists, but neo-monarchists in the sense of the West, in the Holy Roman Empire, um, the Catholic Church is alluring for multiple reasons. Uh, It's the tighter run ship between, between Catholicism and Orthodoxy, you know, like many Orthodox figures, especially in the West, will tell you that too. Like Father Josiah Trenum um, will talk about how they're basically the tighter-run ship. And so many words are not so many words. Um, and it's intertwined with a lot of the glory of Western Europe. And I can definitely see how that's attractive. Um, but getting into, you know, the councils, uh, especially the first and second ecumenical council... Um, figures like Mark of Ephesus we know that the original structure of the church was not centralized around one person Um, and this has been described I I think um, you know it was really well distilled by the orthodox wisdom podcast um, as the, the first sign of humanism in the church you know, we have that if uh, Father Callistos or Callistos where, you know, Memory Eternal, he <laughs> talked about in his texts, you know, this, this kind of like cheeky joke that's not so cheeky that the Pope is the first Protestant. Because is the first to take the, the faith in his own hands. Um, we know that you at least you and I know, and other Orthodox Christians know that the original structure of the church is you know Christ at the top, and you have patriarchs, and that the church is both physical and body and spiritual and body, and the physical will inevitably make mistakes, and they're very open about that. But spiritually, over time, they'll be corrected. Uh, key examples of this are the restoration of our iconography first by Saint John of Damascus, um, and then you know really solidifying that within the Byzantine Empire with the patron saint of my my girlfriend, um, Empress Theodora, and. We know that it isn't as centralized, and we know that Europe, Western Europe, is rooted in the centralization these throne and altar type guys. So it's like the, the Pope, the King, so on and so forth. But you and I both know that it wasn't really always the case. So for people from the East, it's a bit different. You know, there is there is kingship of Christ, without a doubt. There's the Emperor. Um, at one point, there's the Tsar. But the religious um, the religious structure is is not exactly as centralized uh, as it was in the West, and this is something that I'm I'm doing somewhat of a ramble myself. But the somewhat decentralized nature of America pre takeover pre managers takeover actually metaphysically matches the decentralization of. Of the the patriarchs, so not necess- It's clearly not monarchist, but there are some parallels there. Um, I've had someone. and I'm I'm curious as your thoughts about this. Like we talk about saving the West, and I don't want the West to collapse, but a lot of what we understand the West to be now is is rooted really in the structure of Catholicism of the Pope and. The Holy Roman Empire, and then later on, other monarchs, and you know, like gave way to the splintering of Protestantism. But for us, we see a bedrock as something, and correct me if I'm wrong if this is not your view, but we see the bedrock as something pre humanism, pre schism, um, that's rooted in faith and somewhat question marks, not as so much as as bedrock solidified points. Like the the Bible wasn't established till 200 years into the church, things move slowly. Um, so to sum up everything that I've said in my sort of ramble, like, I'm curious if you've given this, any of this, any thought, I'm curious if you kind of, what you think of the bedrock of society is, you know, is, is the West itself so intertwined with this post-schism worldview, this humanist worldview that it needs to be completely ruptured or can be sort of deified on a macro scale?
1: You know, I had the mentioned this, at least as a pragmatic, um, I suppose, um, solution for the future anyway, in a completely different sort of an Instagram, um, not even stream, just sort of a live stream, you know, those little live streams on Instagram with a fellow uh, I I know, a a good friend of mine called Diego. Now, um, there I said that, you know, right now, as it stands, we're probably going to end up with a sort of uh, empire in the East, so to speak, and an empire in the West. And the empire in the West will probably rally itself around a form of uh, neo-Guelphism, if we may call it that. Again, you know, the Guelphs being the the faction uh, during the, the Middle Ages who were against the imperial authority of the Holy Roman Empire and in favor of the sort of temporal authority of the Pope. Now, as you mentioned, since we're Orthodox and this will rub maybe some of our Catholic um, viewers the wrong way, you know, since we're Orthodox, my understanding of Western history is a lot more, um, I suppose, uh, sympathetic to the view of uh, Dante and uh, later on Evola, who would go on to essentially rephrase and add onto uh, Dante's framework, that the sort of Ghibelline, uh, you know, pro-Empire spirit of the whole roman empire that the, the idea that the emperor could be in a way a bishop and in that sense have a certain spiritual authority of his own that to me is a lot more amenable than the idea that the pope has um, temporal authority to the extent that we saw later in the sort of guelphist um, excesses i suppose and you know in terms of conciliarism as you said you know the early church was a council the early church was uh, ecumenical councils, and that's how it worked. This structure, it was rejected. Uh, it, it was a movement of conciliarism within the Catholic church, and it was uh, essentially destroyed. It was defeated. You know, to me, as an Orthodox Christian, I look at that, and I'm like, well, what is that? Why Why did you destroy it? Under which grounds is that not, you know, Christianity as it was supposed to be in practice. But I don't want to get too much into these sorts of things because they tend to be divisive. I will say, as it stands, that uh, maybe we will see a sort of unification around the Pope, maybe in the in the West. But what um, I suppose separates the West and the East in that sense is that the East has a lot more of an imperial tradition in, in the sense of a literal imperial autocrat. You know, we have that with the Tsar and Russia. We had that with the emperor in Constantinople and we have this in the various new other chardoms that appeared later on you know in Bulgaria in uh, in Serbia and many other places that imitate this exact sort of Byzantine political tradition. Um, if I had to say whether this imperial autocracy or feudalism is the best is the better system I would not be able to tell you to be honest. I think If we had to form a system and we had to take inspiration from past systems, like, for example, the American founders did when they uh, were drafting the Constitution, um, then I would say that we'd have to take equal parts from the East and from the West in what we're doing. But obviously, it would have to fit the culture of the people who are there. You know, you can't go into Russia and, you know, give them, you know, English uh, parliamentarianism. It, It doesn't work. It cannot work. Now, you could see, have English parliamentarianism, say in France, have a certain French variety of it. You know, lots of people tried that. You could look at the Orleanists and the sort of Orleans monarchy as an example of that. And, you know, Francois Guizot, you know, who I famously don't really like, um, kind of tried to do that. But um, really, it has to be taken, I think, from, as you said, a pre-humanist sort of idea. For the English, parliaments are like their blood, you know, it cannot be avoided. For English speaking people in the world, the parliament is an integral institution. Now, the supremacy of the parliament or the monarch being simply a a sort of a, a popular figurehead and nothing more, those things are not part of the English tradition, but the idea of a parliament having some sort of legitimacy and authority to make laws, that is there that exists in the English nations, you can never do away with it. And I'm kind of, I had um, some of my more controversial takes, to go back to how you began this, uh, this, uh, this point in particular, uh, some of my most controversial takes in the, on the account was uh, to say that the early founders of the United States were not just subversive Freemasons, like they're often uh, called in, um, in certain parts of our circles, but that they formed actually a proper sort of aristocratic society, an aristocratic landowning society where the major landowners, or I suppose even the middle sort of landowners had the right to vote. And those were the people voting. It was very properly aristocratic, even if it did not have a monarch. You know, it had the president as a sort of substitute for a monarch, a sort of limited substitute. But even then it was aristocratic to its core and they took this exactly this inheritance from the uh, you know the english and more specifically the british who also had this exact um, culture only obviously with a monarch in that sense you know i the other point where i got flack for arguing it but i still stand by it is that the early whigs who are often thought of as the precursor to modern sort of liberalism before or during the time when you know john locke and hobbes and all the rest of them were making their little theories those whigs were not liberals, or at least not liberals in the sense that we think of them, and that their sort of pre-proto-liberalism or pre-liberalism was actually not something harmful. These people, you know, Evola makes this point as well on the two faces of liberalism. It's it's an essay by him. I think it is found in the Metaphysics of Power today. You know, it's a book collection of his essays. Regardless, that's beside the point. He also says this, he argues that... um, the English as they are, um, they they were properly traditional because these people were aristocrats who were looking out to, to defend their own privileges and their own freedom from, you know, monarchical excesses and, and, you know, from tyranny. And that's an all right point to make. I think that's a pretty fine distinction to make between that and the later thinkers who were ideological liberals, who were ideologically captured, uh, you know, that's what I have to say there if I miss the point you know remind me I don't uh, I'm trying to tackle a bunch of things here
0: well, maybe slightly but I think there's we can get back to that. I think there's you know before we keep going down that road there's some interesting things to, to respond to there I agree with your take about the states um, you know the way the United States was you know for much of its early history it, it did function in that way um, and, you know, who, who could vote then and who can vote now? This is not like a, you know, I'm not trying to overturn the three fifths. I'm not trying to overturn, you know, the 13th amendment, um, in response to the three fifths compromise. I'm not trying to overturn. Well, I am trying to overturn the 19th, but yeah, you know, whatever. Um, my, my, my kind of overall point is like, look who can vote in this nation. Not that, I mean, lately votes don't really matter either, but um, look who can vote in this nation. Some people can't even tell you, like, how many, like, you can't even name all the states in this country. Some people can't even tell you, you know, gosh, some people can't even tell you, like, how to get from, like, your people in, in, in Oakland, they can't even tell you how to get from Oakland to San Jose or San Jose to San Francisco, or you take your pick. It's it's, it's a bit sad, Right. Um, These votes are kind of just cannon fodder who can get the most exposure of repeating the same thing to the people over and over and over again. Um, You know, there has to be, you know, originally it was male landowners in this nation that could vote and the nation is functioning pretty well. Um, There are certain moral, um, there are certain moral implications with this. there's, there's an interesting wave of, you know, slavery, um, slavery, like, I don't even want to say being based because I think that's a bit stupid, but, um, like even to <laughs> suggest that out loud, but there's like a, a recent, like notion of slavery being like traditional and it's, it's good. And I'm just like, eh, that's not really something that morally in a heart of hearts that I can actually reconcile, um. And some people will argue that the book of Philemon being like an up from uh, slavery uh, epistle of St. Paul um, view that's like, oh, that's just a liberalist take. I don't necessarily agree with that. And I think that's kind of taking the anti-liberal lens a bit too far. So I do think there is a moral struggle with slavery. And honestly, that's a sin that this nation is paying for. Uh, in more ways than one, you have a group of people in this nation that have been uprooted and don't really have roots. Uh, Marcus Garvey um, and the other Harlem Renaissance, W.E.B. Dubois, but particularly Marcus Garvey, wrote about this extensively, saying, like, we don't really have roots here. Like, our roots are in Africa. We should return to Africa. Um, because this is a very dangerous thing for the psyche of a people to not really know where you came from. So they had to create a culture from scratch. This is much different than like an Afrikaner in, you know, in South Africa. It's like, yeah, we're, we've been here, but before that we came from, you know, from the Netherlands, basically. Um, and so in terms of, you know, the plight of African-Americans, that's, been, that's pretty, been pretty clear. In terms of the plight of the nation, though, you know, the enemies of what it was traditionally America, like the state before... I I talked about this extensively in multiple podcasts, but 1913, 1933, 1945, 1968, 1971, those five years that destroyed this nation. Um, Before that, like this state would be able to be united, but they're leveraging this past sin of America, and that's just destroying this nation from the inside out. If slavery never occurred in this nation, you know, we wouldn't have this gaping hole that can be exploited. Um, so that's in terms of, in terms of voting, right. Um, I'm not necessarily saying that the people, you know, just everyday Americans that may or may not be corralled in this. And I I really hope that this isn't the case because again, um, some of these people who hail from the United Kingdom I respect greatly but this whole like I can't wait for the peasant class to re-emerge and in some ways it is like <laughs> tiny homes overnight oats you know it's like a gradual progression towards pods um I really hope that isn't the case but um I was uh I was speaking with someone who's from China who's pretty well off and it's just like well you know my father's allowed to vote but common farmer that doesn't know what's going on isn't allowed to vote but look how well our nation's doing and i was like i can't really argue that point um then again we don't really know fully what's going on in china they're culturally a very um you know private face saving society that isn't always going to display its full set of cards its full hand of cards rather um but it is it is clear that like the people who don't really know what's going on shouldn't have the same value compared to um you know compared to people who do and some could argue that that's the symptom of saying like well a lot of people aren't educated and that's also the fault of the education system which is true there's also just hereditary iq so on and so forth but there needs to be some kind of like tier of understanding of vote. And I can't even believe I'm saying this out loud um, because I'm not, I really haven't been rooting myself in, you know, aristocracy on and so forth. But it's, it's clear that, you know, in the past when the American populace was more educated with a higher average IQ as a whole, that it was just doing better. Um, And I think you're right about, sort of the east and west i've seen um this 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 term being floated around called the reverse iron curtain theory that you know countries like um countries like hungary obviously with Orban. um people get upset when i say belarus because of lukashenko because he kind of like screws over other countries for the sake of his own but that's pretty that's pretty common in the past um, so Lukashenko in Hungary, Orban and uh, sorry Lukashenko in Belarus, uh, Orban in Hungary, and then obviously Putin and Russia. Their people are doing better than the people of the West in a lot of different metrics. Um, you know, Russia is back on the gold standard with the ruble. Um, American anti culture that comes from where I'm from in the San Francisco Bay Area has, um, you know, has been uprooted from their nation and just completely removed. Um, the, the the church is obviously being fostered heavily uh, in many different cultural efforts. Uh, there are many efforts to expand, you know, the family, right? To have more children, to preserve the future of of the Russian nation. Um, and, and this is being encouraged in Christian parts, uh, and sort of quietly, not really encouraged in parts like Chechnya or Dagestan that are predominantly Muslim. Um, So there's this idea of the reverse iron curtain theory. And in terms of prosperity for the average citizen, uh, that seems to be correct. Um, You have like the potential to be making more money in the West, right? There are plenty of Romanians who go to the United Kingdom. Um, You know, there are plenty of, you know, Albanians that go both the United Kingdom and France. Um, A lot of people are still trying to go to Western Europe to make money. But in terms of just well-being of indigenous peoples, it's it's pretty bad. Um, there's some white pills ish in Italy, Sweden, France, maybe. Um, but in terms of the reverse Iron Curtain theory, it seems that Eastern Europe is picking up steam much quicker uh, than Western Europe. This this new worldview that you're talking about. Um, I do, I did like your piece, kind of like breaking down, um, you know, how some some traditions legally are kind of they're they're communicable between um nations right so it's it's not really too big of a cell to have a parliamentary system completely rooted in english law um given to france that you may a france that was maybe used to napoleonic law or even for that matter vice versa um but trying to like apply the american system to say hungary or belarus not so much um, so there is a gradient there that's, you know, ethnic, geographic, religious, so on and so forth. Um, I, I, I think the East will, will reach there first. Um, I'm curious uh, how it'll play out in the West. Everyone, everyone has an opinion uh, on that. And I'm not really super interested in, um, I'm not really super interested in, again, sort of forecasting because I think, um... I, I think points that you have made, I have made. Uh, Letters in the ruins have made. Um, Zenovial had a really interesting point about how he thinks that we've actually already been living in the winter, um, you know, since the '60s, and and maybe that's like more of a white pill than we bargained for. We're sort of we're sort of like nervous to to believe that because we don't want to we don't want to get our hopes up. Um, but yeah it's um the the west will eventually centralize around something true as the current regime looks to be less and less competent despite many people's beliefs um my question was more in the bedrock of the west right because if if and it's almost like the metaphysical bedrock of the West. And, you know, this isn't, again, this isn't like a campaign for like the spread of orthodoxy in the West. Although I would obviously very much like to see that. And orthodoxy is rising in places like the American South and North Dakota. Um, you know, and it, orthodoxy really only has its roots, like really deep roots, you um, in this nation, in Alaska, and California, of all places, in San Francisco, where I'm from, thankfully. Um, so it's a part of my heritage in that regard. But when we're speaking of bedrock, right, do you believe that the humanism of the early Catholic Church can sort of be divorced um, from the bedrock of the West? Or do you think even that will sort of come into question? Maybe not necessarily not specifically um catholicism itself because again you know i don't really enjoy picking fights with catholics on instagram i think it's all very cringe um, me either <laughs> and, yeah. and i think any i think any orthodox guy who's like and you see this with really with just new western converts honestly you're just like yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna do my part it's like no ah, you're missing the point man um, <laughs> you're missing the point about the personal praxis, uh, the, 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 really, just the cross to bear and the faith. If you're just picking fights with Catholics all the time, um, but I'm I'm curious, maybe more metaphysically now, of humanism and Catholicism. Do you think that can be divorced and be sort of a stopgap for the West, or do you see this being a lot more painful?
1: In regards to that. Um... Here's the thing. I think that uh, the sort of humanism that has already, since it has already occurred, we're going to have to deal with it and we're going to have to deal with it, we're going to we're gonna have to deal with liberalism, we're going to have to deal with the fact that um, all of our countries are, at least in terms of it, their ideal or supposed form, they're all um, liberal democracies, you know, that, that's the, the sort of classi- classification they're trying to get at anyway. Um, we're going to have to deal with all these things. And, you know, you said we don't want to, you know, you don't want, you're not really interested in, you know, forecasting, I would say the same. So I'll only sort of content myself with the East while doing this. I think the way out is truly the sort of strong man, quote unquote, sort of dictatorship, again, in quotes, um, that we see in places like Hungary and Russia I think that uh, you you can find parallels between that and the hellenistic age how in the hellenistic age the various city states went from having functional democracies at least on the local and provincial level to essentially everybody being an individual nobody really caring about you know you know, politics, you had all the same sort of culprits that we see today, you know, Stoicism and Epicureanism. You know, people were like, yeah, we're just going to go the, found the commune in the woods, you know, the Epicureans. The Stoics would just uh, say, yeah, you just got to ignore everything that kind of happens around you, not really care about it, you know, not really uh, deal with it uh, on an emotional level. And, you know, we had all these individualist philosophies and at the same time, you had all these... Um, essentially strongmen taking over states and you know having the the wars of the of the diadochi you know called the diadochi, um, diadochi i think it is in uh, in english i suppose um without getting sidetracked there as for the west now there i don't really know how it's going to go i can't tell you again we're not in the business of forecasting but what i could say about the sort of bedrock of it if we're looking to get down the bedrock of you know the west, uh, I would say that uh, it would absolutely need to be something before the sort of you know humanism that we see, that we've been seeing since the 14th century at the earliest, but the sort of more um, I suppose secular humanism that has existed since at least the renaissance pretty much. You know, those things would have to be done away with if we're trying to get at what it really means to be a Western European, right? As for the rest of the elements, I mean, it's a really big discussion as to what makes the Western European a Western European sort of broadly, I suppose, or what connects that culture. And a lot of it has to do with Greco-Roman civilization, but a lot of the rest of it has to do with the... Uh, essentially sort of nordic warriors carving up feudal states all over western europe and germanic warlords and the rest of it just has to do with the legacy of christianity as a faith as well as certain you know elements of it being unique to the catholic church and others being unique to the various you know protestant lutheran calvinist branches around there We could separate that all away and dig at the bedrock, but I think a much more, I suppose, useful direction would be to say that, well, okay, these things are here now. What do we do? How do you... If this thing is truly so harmful, you know, if we diagnose this thing as really harmful, how do you push it aside? How do you destroy it, right? How do you take it out of people's minds? Because people are working under it right now. How do you... If this thing is very advantageous, I mean, but it's not, you know, uh, either properly Christian or it's not, you know, properly Western or whatever. How do we integrate that? How do we harmonize that with these other elements that we consider to be more important? And uh, through this, we're going to get this process of cultural transformation. And since the winter, whether the winter has started since the 60s, which I I can see the point for, I give it to, you know, Zenovio there. You know, I really see the that point. It truly really is that you know we, we kind of run out of creativity and cultural vitality in the '60s, pretty much as a civilization against the sort of a sort of modern modernist optimism that I mentioned in the beginning. You know, we lost that in the subsequent decades, and what we what we will see is a very long cultural transformation that tries to do away with certain elements and combine other elements in this instance i'd say that nietzsche is very useful to study even if somebody doesn't really like his um, his takes on christianity or uh, his understanding of history and historiography uh, what are the thoughts on that
0: yeah i think i think i agree with you uh, pretty much across the board i'm a big you know, of of the figures that you know were sort of exposed to quite constantly. Um I'd say um you know Carlisle is is one that I resonate with quite a bit. Um uh, to, you know, Carlisle to, to many guys' points. Um he didn't really have the martial spirit of um it Gleb? but he did have like a certain like intensity like this this grit to him that says like no these are the stakes <laughs> these things are vital um in terms of a society like the prison should be harsher because people should really feel the the, the pain of what it is to commit a crime against society um but obviously what i'm speaking of in carlisle in response to what you're saying about dictators is is, is great man theory Right, Putin's a great man. He he is fulfilling that yeah. mold. Um on a on a smaller scale, Orban is fulfilling that mold without a doubt. Um and you know, whether I mean my patron saint is is Saint Constantine, and the way I came to that was, was a bit strange. Um I uh I I'm not sure if I've actually told this story on uh on the air before i've told it to many people so from repeating myself to the listeners my apologies but um you know science sealed and delivered for a very long time um i was going to be uh you know be baptized george right saint george uh and this this came you know back um back right before i attended drama school in london in 2013 my mother took me to a catholic store because we were still catholic then and uh, had me pick a statue uh, of, of, of a saint for my altar in England. Um, and I was torn between St. Christopher and St. George. St. Christopher the strong man, actually inspired me quite a bit more than St. George. Um, but I picked St. George because he's the saint of warriors, the saint of chivalry, uh, the saint of England, where I was moving. Um, for the longest time, and I said, you know, fighting background, um, my game plan, you know, you and I haven't spoke personally very much, so my game plan in life, um, about 23 years old, I was going to... Um, it's a bit later, it's about four years later, you know, three and a half years later uh, before I became an Inquirer in Orthodoxy, my game plan in life was to um, be a professional fighter, be a world champion, write a lot of books, and then if I don't die at 40, uh, go join a monastery. So go to Vallam or something of the like. Um, and when, you know, obviously that's not the case anymore. Um but so science sealed and delivered, it was going to be um, you know, St. George was going to be my patriot saint. Um, towards the end there, I was looking more at St. Christopher and St. Moses the Black. Uh, St. Moses the Black, to this day, has my favorite quote of any saint. I'm paraphrasing once again, you fast, but Satan does not eat. You pray, but Satan does not sleep. The only thing you can really outwork Satan in is humility because he has none. Um, but about a month out from my baptism, at my girlfriend's baptism, I uh, we're you know, long, long, row core liturgy. Of course, you know, like three and a half hours. We're sitting in the car after, and I say, "Yeah," and I don't really know why I said this out loud. I said, "I'm going to take Saint George to my patron saint," and she said, "Are you sure about that?" And when I said it out loud, I didn't believe it anymore. I said, "No, I'm not actually." And Saint Constantine had made himself known to me out of nowhere. And I spoke with my spiritual father at the time about this. Um, You know, he urged me to sort of take him as my patron saint. But you look at Constantine's life, and he listened to God before baptism and so many things um, through this sign conquer, you know, converting his soldiers, painting the crosses uh, in the battles in in Gaul, Um, the Edict of Milan, the Council of Nicaea. He put his life on the line so many times with you know in both just typical battle and decisions like um allowing christianity in rome and then making a christian nation that could have had him pretty easily assassinated because people were assassinated for a lot less uh when they are the emperor of rome um and moving the capital from rome to constantinople and only being baptized you know in his deathbed but I had uh, I had questions about this. Well, he's it not really the most like devout. It's not like a Nectarios or Saint John of Kronstadt. Um, you know, am I really? I had the question: Am I really relying on the prayers of this man? And you know, they talked about you know, not every saint, not every Christian is called to this life of monastic. Not everyone is called to be Paisios. Um, you know, these are they're they're soldiers. There are theologians. There are very, you know, seemingly random martyrs. Um, there are great healers like St. John Maximovich and St. Nina. Um, and Nektarios, once again, for that matter. And uh, then there are monarchs as well. St. Theodora, um, the Empress, and then obviously St. Constantine. And we're seeing a great man theory. It's like something within the cyclical framework of, of the fallen world demands it. Like, it will pop up again and again and again. Like, someone will consolidate everything and cease to to set normalcy. And w- whether that person is Christian or not is the question. Right? And if they're Christian, it's a very, very good thing. If not so much, well, fine. Putin, to his credit, seems to be doing everything to support Patriarch Kirill, who's probably the strongest of our, of our patriarchs um, in the Orthodox faith. I agree with you, uh, pretty uh, honestly, uh, with every point about the East. Um, you know, for someone who lives in the West, it's like, "Oh, that's great, and they're <laughs> they're over there." Uh, I'm over here, and um, I guess I'll just have to deal with things uh, as they come. Um, in terms of, you know, like, like that bedrock you were saying, like. Yeah, I, I honestly, uh, and again for the last time, I won't. I won't forecast, but um, I think inroads. You know, we all want to see the schism healed. Um, I think the less humanism we adopt, the better. Um, the, the current uh, Archbishop in San Francisco for the Catholic Church, you know, is very pro-orthodox, which I was shocked to hear. Um, and uh, and yeah, it's um. It's concerning for me to say the least, but I am where I am, and I don't think I'm going anywhere, so I'll just have to endure that uh, as time comes. Um, I'm curious, you know, shifting more and more towards um, towards Orthodox topics, uh, as it is Lent. Um, when I first came to the faith, I came through uh, Rokor. So Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia. I am now OCA because for many reasons we were led to OCA. Um, I'm currently in Chicago. Uh, we were led to a cathedral, and because uh, uh, and part, the other part of that is I'd like to see you know the autocephalous Church of America grow, and it is growing. Um, but I came through ROCOR, which is pretty hardcore, uh, long long liturgies. Um, you know, first somewhere else in the Bay Area, and then at uh, Holy Virgin Cathedral, the Cathedral of Saint John Maximovich. Um but I was I was advised by um and it's it's funny, I actually prayed as to what church to go for the first time. And there was a Greek church closer to me. And something told me, don't go, go to find a Russian church. I thought, really? I don't know if there is one. I found one um and that's that was kind of later confirmed to me by my first spiritual father and he said yeah the greeks in america have americanized like there's pews in their churches and they're a lot more lenient to to liberalism and it seems to be the case um it seems to be the case you know with people like bartholomew and whatnot um and you know going back to the post you know the period of right after post-ottoman rule it seemed that you know the upper echelons of the church were not really enduring liberalism very well but what i've heard from a lot of people is that you know the clergy and the parishes are still quite devout um so i'm curious you know as as a greek and someone who's in greece you know how do you view the state of orthodoxy in the greek nation
1: here's the thing about that uh well you know, I, I'm not. Uh, I'm not going to pretend that I'm uh, the uh, either the most hardcore, uh, you know, church core or the um, or that I really know uh, very much about the situation of the church within the country. Uh, you know, it, it it saddens me a little uh, on some occasions, and in others, it, it provides me a lot of hope. Um, you know, when I go. Um, when I go to church on Sunday, a lot of the, you know, the actual people there are nowhere near my age. Obviously, they're very, very much older than me. You know, they're all nice, polite. You know, we do what we, um, you know, we also have the pews here. The pews are, I don't know, I suppose they're a, a sort of a feature of, I don't know, the sort of Greek reforms to the Orthodox Church specifically. You know, we have the pews here. They're not pews, rather they're church. They're, um, you know, they're well, they're chairs, right? You know, proper, you know, chairs. But uh, a lot of these things about, you know, the rules about standing or not standing, a lot of them are done away with. You can just stand whenever you can sit whenever you want. A lot of these things are relaxed. I don't know how they work in other um, in other Orthodox churches. Uh, so, uh, you know, maybe I'm uh, maybe things are done a similar way anyways in that regard in countryside there are lots of people who really love their faith they they really love christ they're you know they really want to obey god and they really want to uh, you know they really worship god but the problem is they don't know they don't know anything and i mean it's not their it's not their place to learn like integrate you know intricate theology if they want to do that obviously but that's not really their job. That's not what they're supposed to be doing. Um, or that's not what they usually want to be doing anyway, or can afford to do. You know, they don't have the time. They don't have the money. Um, now, in regards to the actual, you know, priests, there is th- there is trouble there. Uh, you know, f- from what I can tell from the churches I've been in, we're either talking about priests who, well, they try to, you know, keep the um, the service, you know, as the serious and, you know, respectable and, I suppose, you know, reverent manner that it, it's supposed to be. They do sort of take this more lighthearted, I suppose, uh, you know, Protestant-like approach in their sort of personal interactions with parishioners. That's not very bad, you know, but I do wonder if some of the priests are being a bit too liberal i suppose in the way they're interacting now as for the um the rest of them a lot of them are just you know village priests that frankly don't really know much they are not really you know they're not really well read on the theology they they know the liturgy they know the basics but they they don't really go beyond that and that worries me at the same time, I've been to church on a couple of random occasions, either at my uh, my grandfather's, my grandmother's village, a couple of times when, you know, well, my late grandfathers, I suppose I should say, my late grandmothers. Uh, they have a house up on the mountains. And, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, when the, in the summer months, you know, we have a lot of people coming back to the village. And a lot of these people are very young people. And, you know, when I see them at church, you know, that makes me very hopeful about this country. But, you know, then, I don't know, you, you get their Instagram accounts, right? And, you know, they're faithful. And, you know, I'm not going to put the political above, you know, the faith, obviously. The, the point isn't, you know, to be a based, trad-pilled, you know, right-winger, right? You know, first and then to find God. The point is, you know, you first find God, you get your life in order. You are, you know, you, you understand, you know, you, you understand the faith and you are faithful, And then after that, you know, you can actually participate in the political manners. But, uh, you know, again, not to turn the things around their heads, but, you know, when these people, you know, go to the church one day and then the next day they're talking to me about, I don't know, the the acceptance of transgenderism in this country or whatever, it's clear to me that there's a certain disconnect between the liturgy and, you know, what uh, what the church tries to teach the youth and what the youth are really gaining from it that's not to say that there aren't a lot of very bright young kids who are truly letting you know who are truly listening you know they're truly taking you know their moral lessons from the church as they should be um i don't know is that an answer did i answer that
0: well yeah i'd say so it's like it's essentially they're they're kind of defenseless at the moment unfortunately um yeah i i work out with um you know with four four friends of mine from church every morning now um we're, we're all oca and we're all kind of talking about the um you know the, the current like the, the state of oca is improving because like, uh the quote unquote boomer churches like are not necessarily disappearing but they're like being de boomerized <laughs> um and you know, the boomer priests who are really lenient, really quiet about things are retiring. And now um, we, have a, we have an amazing archbishop who's, I mean, in, in person, very you know, clearly, very patient, very caring, an, another Californian. Um, but you know, he's taking a pretty hard line. Uh, he's, he's, he's saying things that need to be said. So um, in terms of like walking the faith, you know what is being allowed is it's very slim, and you know, as it should be. Um, none of this sort of like well, we need <laughs> like like you said, we need to be like really welcoming of transgenders. You know, in a concerted effort for transgender acceptance, it's like well, welcoming and accepting are two very different things. Um, you know, if someone is trying to heal from that mental illness uh, come to the faith, obviously, where else are they going to heal? But the hospital that is the church um but the, the line does need to be there um is there any i mean is there any hope for that situation in greece like are there any people higher up who are sort of saying the things that need to be said or it's pretty much across the board the higher clergy um falling hook line and sinker for this
1: um i mean the the upper ranks for the most part and a lot of the i suppose more major uh, i suppose metropolitans. Um, are very vocal about these things. Um, they are generally uh, more conservative, but they're conservative in the same way that I don't know a Protestant church in the in nineteen fifties America or nineteen sixties America would be conservative. You know, it's the sort of um, the conservatism that is built on sand. You know. You can tell that they're not gonna give in now, but you know, you, your thought is well, you know, give it five years, you know, give it ten years, give it fifteen years, right? I mean, I've been in a situation where we had a priest who was actually saying pretty uh, interesting things. You know, I I wasn't, um, I'm not the biggest uh, sort of supporter of the uh, you know anti-Islam line. That was uh, very big on the on our sort of sphere back in 2016, 2017, where it was all about you know how you know the Muslims are gonna come in here and they're gonna destroy our secular values. You know that was the the big takeaway then. And you know obviously now we look at that and we think, well, you know we were kind of taken in for fools, right? You know they, these forces wanted us to essentially liberalize the Muslims so that you know neither one of us would have a proper rooted religious identity. But anyway, this priest was a very sort of leaned into a sort of religious nationalism in a certain um, speech he gave to the, um, you know, to the church. Uh, this, was in, um, this was in Thessaly, I suppose, uh, you know, or, uh, you know the, the, or the upper parts of, uh, you know, central Greece. I don't want to give away the exact location, but uh, it was uh, in, a, at a church there. Uh, he started speaking about, you know, the migrant crisis. That was the big thing back then. And he was talking about how these people were like Islamists and how we, you know, okay, yeah, you know, Christian charity and all that, but, I mean, you can't let, like, you know, murderers and suicide bombers in, right? And, you you know, he was a bit, you know, fiery with that. Maybe that was not the proper place or venue for him to speak on such matters. But the thing for me to keep here is that his own church, right, his own, you know, the people who are supposed to go to church and, you know, listen, right, they did not want to listen. I mean, my my own mother included, they did not wish to listen. A lot of them were just, uh, you know, were rather, I suppose you could tell, they were rather unsettled by the message because, obviously, there is a certain, you know, spiritual warfare going on right now where, you know, the currents that we see, you know, in power right now, sort of globalist, liberal, you know, postmodern, deconstruction, uh, subjectivist, anything you can, you want to call them. All of these currents that are supported from the top, these currents have taken such hold of people's minds that, you know, the, I mean, the church is really struggling to wrestle with that. And I don't know, I, I can't tell you how that's going to go. I can tell you that I believe that yes the, the the church cannot be you know that that the the devil can never prevail against the church as is you know often quoted you know i, I do think that that's true that you know our church is eternal it, it has to be you know because we we believe in it and you know the, this is what christ said and if we believe in in, the, in christ's divinity in the, his divine nature if we believe that this is you know, what God intended for us, then obviously the church is not going to perish. So I think we will find, I'm hopeful anyway, that we will find a way out of this. But, you know, when you look at it on the ground, when you don't look at it spiritually, when you, when you get too deep in the sort of material, in, in the weeds of the material world, right? It doesn't, it looks a lot more grim, I suppose. You know, that's where, that's the trap of, I suppose, Doomerism in this case.
0: Yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense. You know, one can hope that you know, the structure of the church, the council, will prevail in this instance. Um, you know, things like making inroads with uh, with Francis when w- one singular person doesn't have that authority. Um, the mark of Ephesus prevailed um, and to prevent heresy against all the other patriarchs and bishops who were adopting it and in this instance um between the likes of the moscow patriot romania so on and so forth that god willing, that this heresy that is um that is beginning to take hold in greece can be destroyed Uh, it's the heresy of ecumenism it's the heresy of the godless authority uh that father sarah from about extensively and that we face that we face today um we're coming up on time, uh, but this has been uh, very much uh, a pleasure. It's it's been a long time coming, and we're going to have to do this again uh, in the not so distant future. Um, where can people find you? Uh, sure,
1: uh, people can find me on uh, Instagram Principality dot uh, of dot spirit. Um, besides Instagram, I don't really have much. I have uh, my Substack, which is the the Celestial Circle, is what it's called. You know, again, the URL is, you know, principality of spirit, this time without dots, and then com. I mean, if you type that in, I think that's going to show up. Um, I mean, these are my the main spots. And, you know, I'd say, you know, it was I'm, I was glad to be here. I really liked this conversation. There are tons of topics. We opened a thousand topics, and uh, <laughs> we could go... Uh, really in depth into a lot of them. We could like sort of, you know, focus in on a couple of these and, you know, do a couple of shows uh, after that. You know, anytime you're available, you know, we can discuss it.
0: Likewise. No, it certainly is, is the first, but most definitely not the last. Um, and whether it's here or in the upcoming panel podcast that you and I will be involved in with Careless Press, uh, I think we'll be we'll able to, to. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you're we'll right. Very excited for. Um, I think, you know, between all of those you and i'll be able to sort of like hone in on the details of a lot of the topics that were brought up that we probably wanted to go further in the detail with but um you know i didn't want to get too in the weeds um so definitely looking forward to more specific podcasts between you and myself in the future um but to the listeners uh thank you for tuning in um give principality of spirit a follow both on instagram and substack uh, he's certainly one of the best of us um give uh, give Antifragile Fitness a follow as I begin to chill a bit more. Uh, but as always, good night, good storms. God bless. Thank you. Good night.
1: God bless.